Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. What up, y'all? Uh, so exciting news, quick life update. Uh, it's probably more exciting for me than for you, but whatever. I'll give it to you anyway. Um, so one of the cool things that has been happening in the past year or so, uh, being here at St. Teresa uh, Catholic Church, it's really empowered me. Um, Father Larry has been amazing. It's empowered me to do stuff like this, do podcasts, YouTube series, and a whole bunch of other stuff uh, to really you know, bring the good news of Jesus Christ to people in, in various different ways. And it, you know, it's been awesome. And so basically this past uh, week or so has been super new. Um, you know, we've officially, I've, my position has a, kind of added a position, if you will. So I've always been the director of youth and young adults ministry, but now I am as well the, the media director. So this has empowered me to um, spend even more time here at St. Teresa's than I was doing because I was coaching on the side. And so this is hopefully going to help me to continue to develop, uh, you know, Catholics with Bibles and, and the various other things we have going on here at St. Teresa Catholic Church, because uh, this podcast is is sponsored by St. Teresa Catholic Church. It's, uh, you know, they, they've got me all the equipment and, and uh, let me do my thing. So uh, St. Teresa Catholic Church in Austin, Texas here is the bomb.com. If you're in Austin, come swing by, come say hello. Um, but anyway, uh, welcome to Catholics with Bibles. Uh, very excited uh, to jump into Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, and this is really—I mean, this is the meat and potatoes of of Second Thessalonians. Like we mentioned last time, Second Thessalonians is a really short letter. It's only three chapters, and the third being really kind of the wrapping up and the the goodbye from Paul, if you will. So. Uh, we're doing Second Thessalonians this week, and next week we'll be finishing up and kind of also reviewing a little bit too. And then uh, from that point on, we're going to start going back to some of the things that we used to do before um, the, this recent Bible study happened, which is talking about various passages of Scripture, different keys of uh, Catholic interpretation. Uh, going to start bringing back guests onto the show, which is very, very exciting. Um, always love when I get to have guests on the show. And so with that being said, uh, our Greek word of the day is epi, I'm going to butcher this, epi synagogues, epi synagogues. <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah. Anyway, epi synagogues is a Greek word. Um, it's actually, you hear the word synagogue in it, synagogues. Synagogue is a Greek word meaning uh, kind of a, a gathering, uh, to gather uh, as the verb, uh, gathering. A place to gather. So synagogue, so a Jewish synagogue, uh, comes from this Greek word. I mean, it's, it's a gathering place, right? So episynagoges is um, the being gathered together. So it's it's a it's a verb. So being gathered together, uh, which is going to be here today. But I think it's always interesting to know where words come from. And synagogue, so uh, the Jewish synagogue is it comes from the Greek actually. So it actually doesn't come from the Hebrew. It comes from the Greek. Uh, to, it means gathering place, a place to gather. So we're going to dive right into chapter two here. Chapter two isn't terribly long. It's only about 18 verses, um, only about 18 verses. It is actually eight, 17 verses. Um, so not about 18, it's actually 17. Um, and so we're going to dive in uh, verses one through uh, 12. So we read. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, 
we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. All right, so this is by far one of the weirdest uh, sections of Paul and all the Pauline uh, writing. Um, it's there's a lot going on. Uh, we're like, who the heck are these people? Uh, so just context here. So this is basically why Paul is writing this very short letter. It's because... Uh, presumably the Thessalonican church had been told either by letter or word from these false prophets uh, that uh, Jesus already came and they missed the boat. So if you remember when we were in first Thessalonians, Paul talked about the, 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 the parousia, the, the, the coming of Christ, right? The second coming of Christ, that it'd be this epic world event. Um, and that those who uh, he, that he found worthy would be, uh, you know, taken up the raptured, right? Taken up into heaven. And so, and those who weren't would be left on earth somehow. And so, we have this very interesting passage here. Basically, the Thessalonians were like, dude, did we miss the boat? Like, <laughs> you know, they, they, somebody had told them basically that the, the second coming happened and that everybody was left was not found worthy, which was literally the entire second or the Thessalonican community because they were all still there. So presumably Paul heard about this from Timothy or, or from Silas or from uh, another apostle or companion of his and had to, had to write him basically right away, which almost explains the brevity of the letter. It wasn't a letter that Paul just kind of had, had to think about and chew on and took a long time dictating. You know, it's really, he just it was like, oh crap, I got to address this now. Let's just, you know, pump, pump out this letter real quick, send it right away, at least may, let them know that this is, the second coming has not happened yet. Right, Jesus has not returned. This has not happened, and so and he's and he explains why he knows this, and, and also reminds them. And so, throughout this passage, we have a lot of references to uh, Paul's Paul's referencing things that he assumes that the Thessalonican church knows because he remembers talking to them about it face to face, and so he just knows that they know what he's talking about. He's just reminding them. But unfortunately for us doesn't mean we know what he's talking about. Um, and so, but before we get into all that, uh, we'll start from the top and work our way down. So once again, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, that's uh, Epi Synagogues, 
We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. So calm down, either by spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. So presumably these false prophets said they were with Paul and actually weren't. So these are just punks who basically wanted to mess with the church. So to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, right? So that's everything we just said. Paul is telling them, hey, calm down. You know, these false prophets that spoke in our name seem to be from us. They weren't from us. Uh, and the second coming has not happened yet. In verse three, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So um, the, another way to put that son of destruction is son of perdition, which is uh, similar to the Greek. Isaiah 57 talks about that. And also, I don't know what your Bible's translation says. Mine says, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Uh, rebellion's an okay kind of word, um, but it's, it's actually better translated. It's apostasy. So in the Greek, it's ha apostasia. Ha apostasia. Man, y'all, I wish I spoke fluent Greek. I mean, not that Koine Greek is a thing you can speak fluently nowadays. It's totally different than modern Greek. But anyway, um, apostasia is the Greek, which we hear the word apostasy. So it's not, a, I mean, it's a form of, apostasies are a form of rebellion. It's a rebellion against God, but you, you miss the, the gravity of the word. It's so the apostasy has to come first, namely the total renunciation of God from a lot of people, you know, in the church, you know, and people who claim to believe. So an apostasy is somebody who claims to, uh, you apostatize when you claim to believe in Jesus and then also, uh, and then, you know, all of a sudden say, no, I don't believe in Jesus. Um, and it's, it's what, it's the one of the most serious, if not the most serious sin you can commit, right. Is a public renunciation of your faith. Uh, that's a direct sin against the, the theological virtue of faith. Um, and so, and this is why that movie, um, oh man, what was it called? Silence maybe it's, it was that, Movie was released, I don't know, three or four years ago, maybe four or five years ago now, um, where like the Jesuits go to Japan and there's persecutions and they're serving. And then all of a sudden at the end, they're torturing Christians and all they, t they talk to the priest, like all you have to do, you know, for us to stop torturing these Christians is to, you know, step on the, this image of Jesus and, you know, apostatize basically. And this is a big struggle, blah, blah, blah. And he ends up apostatizing in order to stop the torture of these Christians. And while like, the emotional effort, emotional feeling behind it is like, oh man, like, you know, he's, it, you know, it's bad that he had to do that, but like he saved these people. And so like, maybe that's okay. But for a Catholic, for an authentic Catholic disciple of Christ is what he did was literally the worst thing he could have done. Better to die than to renounce Christ. Better to die than to apostatize in front of other Christians who are being persecuted. Why? Because you're the priest apostatizing, renouncing Jesus publicly like that could one forfeit his soul, right? He's publicly renouncing and it doesn't matter what he believes interiorly, like he did it. And then also those Christians who were struggling, how many of them then apostatize? How many people fell away from the one true faith because this priest apostatized? So um, on the surface, that movie can like look kind of, you know, oh, well, he didn't actually believe in his heart. He still did it. Blah, blah, blah. Like, no, like a uh, and don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not saying like that I for sure would know what to do in that situation and, that, and I'm telling you I would be strong and blah, blah, blah. I think anybody who can say that is just ignorant and dumb because you just have no idea what you would do in that kind of situation. And God willing, none of us would apostatize and all of us would stay strong to the faith. And through the grace of God, we know we could. 
you know, but at the same time, so I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm some person who like you could punch me a million times and I would never apostatize. You could torture my wife and I would never do it kind of thing. And I mean, hopefully I wouldn't, but at the same time, I don't know. All that being said, apostasy is the most, like the most serious thing, right? It's a direct renunciation of God and of Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying that, you know, the day of the Lord isn't come because the rebellion, the apostasy has not occurred yet. They're still Christians, right? They're still, they're still Christian communities. Paul's still there. They're still there. And so first of all, that, that hasn't happened. And so the next thing is in the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. So there's this man of lawlessness, right? So that he hasn't been revealed yet. So that's another reason we know that this hasn't happened. Um, and what does this man of lawlessness do? He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So basically this is, this is almost like an antichrist figure, right? Um, he doesn't use the word uh, antichristos directly in the Greek here, but he does use it elsewhere. Paul uses it elsewhere. Um, it's a, basically, it's a, it's a figure, a uh, man, presumably, who basically renounces all religion and places himself as the object of worship, saying he is the one true God in place of God. And so, um, you know, a, a potential figure that Paul has in mind here is Emperor uh, Caligula. Um, and, you know, why do, I, why do we think this? Is because uh, he had an image of himself put in the temple before it was destroyed in 40 AD, which is not too long before uh, Paul wrote this letter. And so basically he, he took an image of himself, I mean, probably a statue or something, and he put it on the altar of sacrifice in the temple, namely saying, no, your God is fake and I am the true God. Worship me because emperor, uh, emperor worship, I think we talked about way back when, was a very common thing in the Roman Empire, right? Because the emperor was, quote, the son of God because once, he, once the emperor died, he became divine in, in Roman uh, the, the, theological understanding, um, which is total garbage. Uh, but that's what they thought. And so um, verse six, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. All right. So this is the, it's the wording for Paul is, is kind of weird, but this is the basic chronological order. Number one, something or someone is restraining the lawless one, right? So we know that currently something or someone is restraining the lawless one. Something because in verse six, it says, and you know what is restraining him. So that's kind of vague. But then um, later on in verse seven, we read, only he who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So we know it's a he. Um, so something or someone's restraining the lawless one. Number two, after restraint removed, then the apostasy takes place. We read about this, and we also see references in Matthew, like 24, Jesus talks about this, um, the end of time and the destruction and the apostasy and all these things. It, uh, it's Jesus' apocalyptic uh, prophecies. And then what happens after that? So then Jesus will return, verse 8, um, and he will kill the lawless one. Uh, so the question then raises is what are what is it or who is it that restrains this lawless one? Um, and so this is actually uh, kind of funny. Um, St. Augustine actually talks about this and uh, he basically says it perfectly. So I'm going to read what St. Augustine said. So bear with me a little bit here. And then I'll get into the four like most common interpretive options of what it could be. So St. Augustine says uh, in the city of God, he says, since the Thessalonians know the reason for antichrist delay in coming, St. Paul had no need to mention it. 
but of course, we do not know what they are. And much as we would like, and hard as we strive, to catch his meaning, we are unable to do so. The trouble is that the subsequent words only make the meaning more obscure. Quote, For the mystery of iniquity is already at work, provided only that he who is at present restraining it does still restrain it until he has gotten out of the way, and then the wicked one will be revealed. End quote. What is to be made of those words? For myself, I confess, I have no idea what it is meant. The best I can do is to mention the interpretations that have come to my attention. So, all that being said, is basically, if St. Paul couldn't figure it out, and nobody else has figured it out, I don't know it either. Uh, but like St. Paul, I'll give you the four uh, most common interpretive options of what this thing or this person is that is uh, restraining the... Uh, this lawless one. So one early interpretive option, which I think is falling out of favor, but it was there, um, was that the, it was the, so remember it's a thing and then it's a person, right? So it starts with the it's uh, kind of a what, and then it goes into a he. So this combo, the first option is the Roman empire and the Roman emperor are what is restraining and those who restrains respectively. Um, so, Basically, this, this assumes a positive view of, of the empire and its authority. Um, and so this is kind of like imperial Christianity. Um, so that's, that's option one. Option two is that it's the preaching of the gospel and Paul that prevent the coming of the lawless one. Um, and, you know, you know, this option came from citing Matthew 24, which I reference 14. It says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So this is view of Paul preaching to all nations. Uh, option three um, is, you know, the restrainer basically is nothing in particular. Uh, this comes from a guy named Eugene Boring. He says, the author of Second Thessalonians himself probably not have in mind a specific power, principle, or person that was presently restraining the advent of the lawless one. He likely intended his de depiction to be provocatively obscure. Um, well, that's kind of boring, but anyway, it's out there and a lot of theologians, you know, like this one. Uh, basically saying Paul didn't, didn't have anything in mind. Uh, the fourth one is that it's, a, it's an angel, probably uh, Archangel Michael, um, you know, basically, because uh, we know it's not Satan that's holding the lawless one back, because why would he? Um, God doesn't need to because God appoints his angels to do his, his, his bidding when it comes to working with things lower than he, uh, most of the time at least. Um, and so if you're asking for like my opinion I mean, probably Angel, Archangel Michael. I like that one. Uh, only because for me, it fits into what we read in Revelation. about the, You know, the angels really doing a lot. And especially if you read Revelation closely, it's always the angels that like, you know, uh, are kind of <laughs> initiating these like cataclysmic events. Um, but that being said, would I die on that hill? Nope. Um, I, I don't, uh, nobody, St. Augustine doesn't know, nobody knows. Um, but those are the four options, namely the, you know, the Roman emperor, uh, Paul, uh, nothing in particular, or an archangel that's holding the lawless one at bay. So take it or leave it. Um, those are the four options. Um, like you said, like I mentioned, Nathan Eubank in his, in his commentary on first and second Thessalonians kind of breaks that out uh, more in more detail. We don't have quite time to do all that here. Um, but we do know, verse 8, and then the lost one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his word, uh, with the breath of his mouth, sorry, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So one of the things that I think too many Christians have in mind is that 
there's this epic battle between um, Jesus and the Antichrist at the end of time, or Jesus and, and, and Satan, or God and Satan. There's this epic cosmic war kind of going on. And that is just simply not the case. Um, God is infinitely more powerful than Satan or the Antichrist ever could even fathom being. Um, literally, the only reason Satan still exists is because God holds him in existence still. Right, so if, if God didn't will His existence, Satan would literally cease to exist, and it'd be as if He, as if he never existed. Um, and so, all Jesus has to do to beat the lawless one, this Antichrist, is show up and breathe, and this Antichrist is going to melt away in total terror. Because remember, every knee shall bend on heaven and on earth and under the earth at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and Lord. Um, and so. That's one of the things that we got to remember when it comes to spiritual warfare, when it comes to, you know, thinking about angels and demons and stuff. While we have to take it serious, I mean, spiritual warfare is serious on our end. But for God, I mean, Satan's a dog on a leash, as my old boss used to tell me. It's a, he's a dog on a leash, right? He, got, he can only do what God permits him to do in order to bring about uh, God's plan at the end of the day, uh, which drives Satan absolutely mad. But it's a form of, like, punishment for him, right? Um, he's a dog on a leash. And all Jesus has to do because he is God is to show up and breathe and the antichrist melts away. Um, so that's basically the message here. Um, and at the end of verse 10 and with, and there's over verse nine, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So it's going to come with all this false crap that is going to impress the, those who aren't true disciples in verse 10, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So all the people who are not saved, who are condemned, are those who rejected the truth and the goodness and the beauty and the love of God. Um, and they took pleasure in unrighteousness. So it's not even that they renounced God and they apostatized and they rejected it. They, they enjoyed living in their state of sin, right? They, they loved it. They longed for it, right? Um, and so this, this, is, this is their punishment, right? Sin is its own punishment and hell is, you know, us rejecting God, right? Being like, no, I don't want you. I want my sin. I want this pleasure, and God says, okay, you can have, you can be all by yourself in your pleasure and your sin for the rest of eternity. And, it, and it's then they find out that it's utter sheer loneliness and pain. Um, and, and then quickly wrapping up verse two, verse 13 through 17, we read, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits uh, or from the beginning, depending on your translation to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then brothers stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Um, so the only kind of like, super interesting um, part here is uh, this word first fruits um, is basically one letter away from the word uh, chose you from the beginning. So there's theologians that argue that it's actually because God chose you from the beginning rather than chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Um, they're both kind of cool. I like chose you from the beginning and I think it makes a little bit more sense grammatically speaking here. Uh, but first fruits, I mean, could work. Um, first fruits being the, the, 
Uh, remember the first fruits you harvested in the, in the first 10% you, you sacrificed and you burnt and you gave it to God for his glory. And so it was a gift, right? Um, so for us, for first fruits to God, um, it means we give of ourselves totally to God first and foremost. Um, yeah, and so basically Paul just affirming them, you know, believe these things, believe the things that, that we taught you, this tradition that we taught you, either through spoken word or letter, low-key uh, punch to Sola Scriptura people, um, because Paul even says himself, um, not everything came to you uh, from our letters. It came to you through what we said too. So there is oral tradition as well as uh, written tradition, big T tradition. And there's two, there's, you know, one font and two channels. Namely, the font is always the word, the son of God, the channels being uh, scripture and tradition, uh, big T tradition, obviously. And so low key jab to uh, those that are into Sola Scriptura. If you're into Sola Scriptura, uh, maybe we can have a conversation with that one day. That'd be kind of fun. But anyway, we're not gonna get into it here. Um, and yeah, so God is giving a, a blessing there at the end and that lets us wrap up chapter two and we're now ready to dive into chapter three and finish off our Bible study of first and second Thessalonians. So thanks again for joining me with Catholics with Bibles and we'll see you next time team. Once again, thank you so much for joining me with Catholics with Bibles and this Bible study we've been doing, First and Second Thessalonians. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have, go ahead and like, subscribe, share, talk to your friends, talk to your family about the podcast, and it helps us get the word out to teach more people about the truth, goodness, and beauty that is the Catholic Church's interpretive tradition over Scripture. So until then, we'll see you next time. God bless.